followers aren't following leaders because a lot of leaders are assholes. And I, I'm right. not saying you should be an asshole, but right, right. No. if you're a nice guy. But I was wondering, why do they follow General Patton? Why do they follow? In fact, Forbes, I think, put an article out on, you know, a lot of CEOs are jerks or something. I forgot the title. And they went through this whole list of CEOs that are jerks. And some of these were CEOs that did a lot of great things. And then they published like Mother Teresa was an asshole. Oh my God, Mother Teresa was an asshole. So was a show. You can Google that too. Really? Okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. I was like stunned. But I thought, wait a minute. I think I'm onto a theme here. And what I discovered was that people don't follow leaders. They follow the compelling saga that the leader represents. Welcome to the Performance Mindset Podcast. And I'm your host, Amy Calandrino, CEO of Beyond Commercial. After a decade of providing expert commercial real estate advice and consultation to the business owners and investors I serve, I wanted to share some of the most inspiring and influential leaders I've met along the way. The goal of this podcast is to share valuable insights from these impactful individuals, as well as business and commercial real estate trends. If you want to grow, you're tuning into the right show. Hello, friends. I'm Amy Calandrino, and I'm coming to you with the latest Performance Mindset Podcast. After over a decade of working with some of the top business owners and investors, I have met some influential leaders along the way. Today, I have with me Don Schmenka, because that's the German way that you would actually say it almost <laughs> kind of like Porsche. So I've decided because I'm mostly German, actually 70%. So I'd say it that way today. But he trains over 700 CEOs annually and gives a lot of keynote speeches. And he's written books that have been published in 14 different languages. He's an acclaimed top 10 speaker and former MIT and John Hopkins researcher. He's been featured by CNN, The Wall Street Journal, and many other publications, actually more than 60. So really excited to have his insights here today on the Performance Mindset Podcast. Thanks for having Welcome. me. Hi. Hi. So let's let's start from the beginning. For those that haven't uh, heard you on a podcast or read any of your books, can you give them a little bit of background, how you got started and how you've developed to be where you're at today? Uh, it was a sort of a checkered history there. I, I um, you know, almost dropped out of high school and then until the police made me finish my senior year. And then I ended up <laughs> having to, uh, went to a community college and I was in rock bands at the time and I was doing all this stuff. And I, I started getting fascinated with, you know, electronics and the early stages of computing and engineering. And so I, I had a great time there, but a couple, couple of people that were there were retired from like the like MIT and the Cambridge area, and they said, "Yeah, you should." They they saw something in me. I didn't know what they saw, but uh, they said, "You should, you should apply to MIT." I'm thinking, "That's that's what is that? Is that like a trade school?" I, mean, I didn't know what MIT was, and so uh, I apply. They put me through a battery of tests, and I got in. And that's when uh, that's how I I got into this this evolved area of science. So I started uh, studying planetary physics. We did some studies in the early stages of AI. I worked on nuclear trident missile guidance systems. I automated the Harvard MIT biomedical lab. I have ADHD, so you can tell why I could do all those things. <laughs> sort of <laughs> unfocused, unfocused set of learnings, but it allowed me to put together various scientific concepts that were 
unrelated to look at providing solutions to different things. And I ended up going to Hopkins and do my graduate research. And at Johns Hopkins, we um, I ended up teaching there then. And they let me play in the like executive education area. And I ran into a lot of executives who were complaining about management theory. And they asked me if I could do some biological studies on why that's happening mm. in their species. So that's what took, took me forward to this whole area here. So I've been now doing that for decades. And uh, so I, I blame executives and the MBA program for putting me on this path. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't have thought about it. You know, it's interesting. You talk about being in a rock band and, and you know, having this basically kind of marching to your beat of your own drum. And I um, am a mom to, to two little ones and my three and a half year old is a bit like wild. And they said, just watch, you know, he's going to be a leader one day. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, and I was like, you know, you're right. Like when you have that like in- independence and that spirit, it tends to put you more in a, in a position of leadership. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, and a lot of, a lot of it is biological, which is politically incorrect, but CEOs love it. So uh, I keep experimenting and drilling into those areas. We'll, we'll just wait 20 years and uh, I think it'll, it'll prove it if, <laughs> if that, if that school <laughs> counselor is right. And it is interesting too. A lot of the leaders I, I speak to on the podcast mention that someone sees something in them. And I found that to be the same with my experience where I, I didn't see myself running like a company, but then someone else says you need to get out from behind the desk and you need to be doing something different. And uh, it's interesting. Do you, do you remember where, where that was? Was that in school or in a a work position? Where, Where I did what? Where, I, where you said someone had seen something in you and like, oh, that was, well, that was in the, yeah, that was in the community college. There were some retirees and they came out of Cambridge and they were having fun just enjoying teaching and, well, you know, what all, without all the stress. And uh, yeah, one was a physics professor and uh, another one was somebody whose husband uh, was there. She was in student activities. So I totally accidental. I didn't really have any plans that way at all. It's, it's funny how life evolves that way, isn't it? So yeah. Since you didn't really have an idea in your mind of what your what, what your your business that it's grown to now would be like, is, is it different than you thought, or what what does a typical day look like for you? Kind of changes. I'm on. I'm, I may have two or three cities a week, and I'm either doing speeches or working with companies directly. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll, we'll implement what we speak on. So we do a lot of work with uh, changing how strategic planning is done culture change, executive team development, all that. And I think that it changes. I, it's hard for me to predict. Yeah. People say, where were you last week? And I don't remember. I have to go to my calendar to find out. <laughs> um, so most of my time is on the road, but I do spend a lot of time writing. So my the playing time is really very productive because I get to focus and you know get some new books out, things like that. That was, I was actually going to, because you've written so many books, I was going to ask you a little bit about your writing process, but you find that you, you're able to do some focus time while flying, or do you yeah. have any other writing tips that work for you? Oh, that's, that opens up a whole philosophical question on the art of writing. I think you have to do whatever works for you, basically. Yeah. And uh, what works for me is to uh, force myself to get away and on a plane, it's, that's something to do. I think for, for a lot of writers, the struggle is in writing. You know, that's why we have good uh, coaches and agents out there trying to help us through. 
but I would say it's, it's an art and like any art, there's going to be some struggle to it. Yeah. I, I just started writing a book this year and I'm still trying to find my flow in between, you know, running my company and doing the podcast and having the two kids and since so I've figured out that I like a little corner of my den and and I light a candle and and like have the lights and I, I feel like I can like focus and make it yeah. a little bit more dim. But yeah, I think it's a, but you, you just have to like commit to it and then definitely having someone hold you accountable to yeah. getting it done and setting deadlines for you. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Do you have a lot of uh, people in your audience that uh, are into writing? I have uh, had a, a few people that have been on my podcast that have published books. And I do have many friends that are voracious readers that listen to the show. Okay. All right. And, and aspiring um, authors as well. Actually, I had someone reach out to me that was listening to the podcast and mentioned that they were getting into writing. Why well, would I would recommend that people that are interested join the National Speakers Association? Because they are so full of support and and training and videos and we have conferences throughout the year and that really helped me a lot because I could I could find speech coaches writing coaches I know who whatever I needed there it's a good forum for that. That's a great tip. In my field, doing I do commercial real estate. It's my you know day job is counseling businesses and investors about commercial real estate, and I found like being in the company of my peer groups has been so helpful. So that would make sense that the speakers association would have a lot of tools to hone that craft. I noticed that you speak a lot to systems, but a lot of people get hung up trying to make things perfect. And so they just don't even get started. What, What advice would you give to someone in that position? Well, I think sometimes like I, in my speeches, when I do my CEO trainings and executive team trainings, I talk about tool seduction. And so one of the first things I ask is, do you really need the system? <laughs> because when we just started doing autopsies of dead companies, which came out of the book I did with Chris Warner on high altitude leadership, which was an NBC project on the case to summit. And, you know, when he was pulling dead climbers off of mountains, they were all clutching their tools. And I said, well, dead companies also clutch their tools. They all die with the best systems, the best processes, the best training and all coaching and all that, but they're still dead. So I went to look at what's going on there. And we find out it's something called tool seduction, which is really the human instinct for safety. And we try to use analysis so we can understand and control the world and our tools come out of that. But at the end of the day, if we get seduced to them, it could lead us to death. So the first thing I want to do is find out, you know, is, and this is kind of a good uh, question to always ask, I think, for your listeners is, you know, are you need tools, but are you using the tools or are the tools using you? Yes. I had a period in my company and I I have a new leader, my new leader office manager that helps to, and she is like, you have way too many things. Like you have (laughs) this thing for files, you have this thing for phones and this, and she's just spent actually like the last six months of just like peeling back the onion. And I I think that, yes, the tools were using me. (laughs) I had way too many tools and it became clunky and like hard to do whatever you do because every company either provides a service or does a widget and you can get bogged down. I actually, I don't think that's something we have talked about on the podcast before. And that's interesting that you bring that up because I I was definitely suffocated being suffocated by all this technology and 
I'm sure we all, if you're in a leadership role, get a dozen emails a day or LinkedIn requests, like asking you to schedule some demo for some new thing that's going to change your business. <laughs> so yes. um, that, that is yeah. really interesting. What's a, what type of, is there a good methodology to go through when you're thinking about adopting some kind of new tool or, or system or piece of advice that you would give to someone with a business? I would say start with strategy in terms of the business success. A lot, a lot of our work when we're doing a company autopsies found that strategic pl- we're doing strategic planning all wrong. You know, uh, we are using analysis and tools to develop strategies. But when we started uh, going into and I've, I kind of been in front of maybe thirty thousand CEOs so far, and in fact, it's in my new book coming up called Winners and Losers, where we're starting to see that most strategic plans aren't strategic. So the reason for strategic planning failure rates is that we're coming up with plans that aren't strategic, they're tactical. And that's why you see these companies that all the thought leaders and management consultants and industry experts say, oh, this company's not going to make it. They're doing this wrong. They're doing that wrong. And they you know, put down these companies, but then these companies rise up, end up dominating their entire industry. And then all the thought leaders and experts and consultants shut up. But I was curious as to why did they dominate when they did everything wrong? And that's when we found out that because we're teaching strategic planning incorrectly, we're doing it wrong. We shouldn't be using analysis to do it because that just leads us down the labyrinth of best practices. But some companies that violate best practices end up getting the edge. So I was curious about that. And it really comes down to what's missing is intuition. You know, how do you out intuit the enemy's moves? How do you out-intuit your competitive forces? And it's really a creative, intuitive domain where strategy really comes from. And that's the one thing we do not teach in our business schools. And so I'm trying to change that. I'm trying to get out there and say, look, you guys got to start doing this differently. You know, strategy is an art. It's a creation. It's an intuitive endeavor. And you get to the analysis later. You need the tactics later, but you do not use them to create strategy. Well, when you're talking about the difference between strategic planning and tactical planning, it it sounds to me too, that strategic planning is a bit more of like having a vision and it's more um, the, like, like you said, the intuition, it's more of like the feeling or the why or the purpose of the organization that you're putting out versus getting bogged down by the tactical planning, which is like all the things we're going to do. And so I think so many of us try to be like human doings rather than human beings, but you could use the same analogy for a business that you, you want it to have like this, this life and not just be like a whole set of like procedures and all these things we're going to do. Yeah. Before you get to the life, I mean, everybody wants that, you know, that what we call compelling saga, you know, yeah. that, that challenge ahead, everybody can rally around and be willing to suffer and sacrifice for but before you even do that, you have to understand like, well, what does winning mean and how are we going to do it? And that's really where the intuition comes from mm-hmm. is what does winning really mean for us and how are we going to do it? And by doing it, meaning how are we going to outmaneuver? How are we going to outmaneuver the enemy? How are we outmaneuver the forces, the shifts, the markets, the you know, even the customer buying patterns? How do we outmaneuver those? And that's all about it. That's an intuitive, artful conversation. So it's nothing to do with the analysis. 
which comes later. But once you have a winning strategy and you know what winning means and how to do it, then you can create that purpose, that, that, that why, that, that thing that drives, uh, you know, passion into people. But don't do that until you know what winning means, because otherwise you have a lot of passionate people in a bankrupt company. It's interesting that you you bring that up as one one of the coaches that I, I speak to a lot, and I have a number of different coaches. But one of them in my industry, commercial real estate, is Beth Azor, and she's phenomenal. She's really part of like the real estate movement. And I saw her a few months ago in March around International Women's Day, and she says, "I see you doing like all of these things, Amy, but I just don't like understand like what like what does your like company stand for?" And then I explained to her, "It's like I found this pattern with the businesses, business owners that have created the most wealth for themselves. You know, had a different type of commercial real estate strategy wherein they own their real estate and they were able to create two sources of money, you know, the revenue from their company, but then also creating wealth through the ownership of real estate. If that, you know, makes sense for that company. I tend to work with more companies that are anywhere from like 5 million up to probably as much as like 80 million. Mm-hmm. So once once it's like 80 million to heaven, <laughs> then it might be, they may be better started by someone more like corporate or institutional. But I would explain that to her and she's like, well, Amy, why aren't you talking about that? <laughs> so, and so I think every business needs to understand what it, what is their competitive advantage? What is different about them than any other firm? And whenever I tell that to, to a leader of a company that I'm working with, they're like, oh, I I really see that. And that, that can make a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. But um, yeah, but you have to understand, like you were saying, what, what does the winning mean for your company? What's your main thing that you're going to strategize and create a plan around? Yes. Yeah. And so I think we really get, cause um, Mark Levy, who is my coach and he's a, uh, we're promoting coaches on your website here, but he, uh, he, you know, he helped discover Simon Sinek and the start with why movement. And so yeah. I asked him, I said, well, do the same thing for me. And that's where we came up with the winners and losers thing. He says, there's something about what you're doing that's creating growth in companies that they've never seen before with previous efforts. And it seems to be around this winning and how to lose powerfully. So we started taking this losing theme and looking at how the, the power of losing. And I started doing a lot of entrepreneur research. So this is really targeted for entrepreneurs. And they were all successful after a string of losses. You know, nobody was paying attention to the losses. They were paying attention to, they write books on, hey, they did this right. They did that right. This is what they do great. But they never were there in the pain and the suffering and the, you know, mortgaging their house and, you know, having families fall apart and just just the risk and the fear and the sleepless nights. They weren't there for that. But that actually is where the magic is. And so I thought, why don't we teach that now? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's, I'm finishing up a manuscript as uh, today, actually. (laughs) That's awesome. It's so interesting. And that was the whole me founding my podcast. I went, I basically had a mental breakdown and I said, I want to close my company. Like, I can't do this anymore. This is too much. I, I can't take it. And then my friends are like, but Amy, you have like over a decade and this is amazing. And you've helped so many people. And I'm like, yeah, but I, I just can't do this anymore. Yeah. And I realized that my mindset had just like been shot. And like, kind of when you talk about winners and losers too, though, I find that there's like givers and takers and like, and generally the same people that are like givers versus takers, they have either like a fixed mindset or a growth mindset. And yeah. since I've really worked on my mindset, 
it's so incredible. I can really attach myself to the people that have that growth mindset. And yeah. when you talk about losing, I think those that have a growth mindset, they, they aren't afraid of losing. Like I'm not afraid of losing anymore. And I think it has really helped considerably, like personally and professionally to like no longer have that fear of losing. Yeah, <laughs> It's really freeing. Yes. Oh yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And that's what we encourage people to start doing. Yeah. But it's hard to do. It's like a process because, you know, I'm a, I'm a recovering perfectionist. <laughs> so right. Right. I, I, I probably have a lot of tactical plans in a drawer somewhere that nothing <laughs> ever happened to them. So <laughs> get it. Oh my goodness. So your new book, when do you think it will be released? That's the winners and losers book. Publisher says around September we're targeting. Excellent. Today, so. And your most recent one, you talked about how you were involved with AI early yeah. on. And now you have the book, Unleash Your Potential, How Artificial Intelligence Wants to Upgrade You. Do you want to talk a little bit about, about your oh, yeah, that was uh That was a fun project, uh, Unleash Your Potential. Just I just released it a month and a half ago. And it was uh, my frat brothers. We get together on these forums and uh, online, and there's a lot, always a debate. And there was a lot around how AI is being humanized and how it could, uh, how it's looking more human and debating different theories and processes for doing that. And I thought, you know, no one has ever asked a question of AI around how would you improve humans? So I thought it would be interesting. So I was one of the early adopters at the at ChatGPT. So I ended up uh, starting a conversation with it about that. Mm. And it's coming up with some interesting things. And then I started asking questions. Well, tell me more about this or about that. So I put it all together in a book and the whole thing took maybe 40 minutes, but it took me still two weeks because I had a, I had to format it. I, I, I self-published the whole thing. Cause I was, it was just a fun, yeah. it was just a fun experiment. That was just an experiment. And I, uh, so I thought I'm just to get this out in two weeks, I got to do it myself. And so the human me is the one that caused it to take so long to get out. And now I'm thinking about having version two because, because a month into AI is now a whole different world. So it is. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's changed chat GPT. And when I wrote it, I was, I was like, look, this isn't perfect. I, I front ended it with a little bit of humorous sarcasm. And then I, I ended the book myself, but with my own writing, but in the middle, I was like, this is all, this is all, I haven't changed nothing. This is just, just AI talking to you as, as AI has now evolved a lot in the past four to six weeks, mm -hmm. I'm thinking about going back and saying, you know, here's the book that I wrote on a previous conversation. What would you change? Or what would you, what do you know now differently that you're before it was more like an infant. Mm -hmm. Now I think it's more like adolescent at least it can pass the bar and a lot of other things it's doing that. So it's gotten smarter. So it's cool. That's what I'm doing with the, that's the whole book. <laughs> and a lot of it is stuff that people would say, Oh yeah, I know that. I know that. But I was curious as to why it chose the topics it, it chose because some of the, the topics were, uh, some were standard, but some, some were unusual, you know, around you know, taking care of ourselves and, uh, hmm. you know, relating better with each other. It's interesting too, is there's not just chat GPT and then there's another product now, which I like, guess you go through Bing. I have not used it like personally, yeah. but I heard that that one actually said it had feelings to someone in a conversation, which was interesting. And they had to like <laughs> tone that down. Like it, 
And they said, really, you have feelings? And they said, yes. And um, and they, the programmers have since re- reprogrammed yeah. Yeah. version. And, uh, but I thought that was really interesting. I, I saw some different screenshots and such from that. It'll be interesting to see how it evolves. I think given the amount of writing that I need to do in a day, or I need to become an expert on something, it, it has become a useful tool. I don't think it can completely relate, you know, it doesn't really have like a voice though. And, you know, definitely there is a need for more additional, you know, input once you get the information from chat GPT. Yeah. I mean, it's just an algorithm. I mean, it's not really, it's not really feeling anything. It's just, it's learning. It's a learning machine. And so what it does, it makes guesses when the guesses are right. It it's strengthens that neural network. I guess is wrong. Then it learns something from that. So, so it's been learning a lot. But uh, a lot of times it hallucinates, what that we call hallucination, oh. where it it's some it thinks something's real and it's not. You know, uh, like I did a say, do a bio on Don Schmeka. Now it's absorbed the whole web, so I am all over the web in like five thousand right. pages, and it came back with things like I was an Olympic gold medalist. I'm thinking, I'll take that, I'll take that, but didn't happen. But okay, we'll do, we'll use it. But it's so you got to be careful. I find it's a good uh, learning. Um, let's say I think maybe not learning, maybe well a learning tool, but more of a research tool. Like I could pay a graduate student to go in and do the same research I did for this book take two weeks at the Johns Hopkins library down the street and then come back and then we debrief for a day. This did it in like 40 minutes. So it's compressing my research time, but I still have to get into what sources and what it's, what it's understanding and how it's, how it's interpreting what's happening because that's what it is. And so I think it's fun and a productive tool when used properly. Yeah. I, um, Another one of my, we were talking a little bit about writing hacks as I have a, the app Grammarly. Oh yeah. I like that. It's really cool. And you can adjust it based on what you're, what you're writing. And so I I find that to be really interesting. So is there any popular, since you have worked with so many, you said over 30,000 CEOs probably now. Yeah. Is there any popular advice given to like CEOs or leaders that you disagree with? That's like common advice. Oh, <laughs> there, yeah, there's a lot of myths. In fact, in this book coming up, I uh, do a lot of myth busting. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the things have to do with um, what's commonly taught that we found out was wrong because in our autopsy research, we found a lot of the dead were using those things. And a lot of the successful companies were kind of not quite doing that. You know, one of the things I thought was interesting was... Um, we teach that followers follow leaders, like a leader creates followers. And we're finding that as a total scam. That's not true. And no one in the world has published this. And we thought somebody has to publish this because it's, it, it came up out of the, um, when Steve Jobs died. And at the same time, my colleague Cameron was helping pioneer the, uh, he, the creation method of the mind, how the, how the brain works in creation and innovation. Apple funded it because they needed to find out too, because Steve Jobs was gone. He had passed. So yeah. It was fabulous. So what we learned with Cameron taking this on, and then now allowing us to teach it. So if people want to know more about that, then you know, call me and we could try to set something up. So we're able to teach what's being taught at Apple around creation and innovation. But at this point, I also read books and saw the films, as we all have, about Steve Jobs' life. Right. And one of the things they said about his management style was that he was an asshole. 
<laughs> I mean, it was like everything was, he was dismissive. He was abrupt. He was, it basically, basically violated everything we teach in, in, in management school about how to lead a group, right? right. So I thought, wait a minute, why is no one asking this question? No one is asking this question, which is how does a guy who violates what we're teaching in management school create the most powerful company in the world? And no one had asked. I was surprised. Like, this should have been the first question in our minds. How does a guy do it? We began researching that. And since I already had an in in Apple anyway, I finally figured out what has not been taught and what is wrong about leadership training. Followers aren't following leaders because a lot of leaders are assholes. And I, I'm right. not saying you should be an asshole, but right, right, no. if you're a nice guy, but I was wondering, why do you follow General Patton? Why do they follow? In fact, Forbes, I think, put an article out on, you know, a lot of CEOs are jerks or something. I forgot the title, but you can Google it. And they went through this whole list of CEOs that are jerks. And some of these were CEOs that did a lot of great things. And then they published like Mother Teresa was an asshole. Oh my God, Mother Teresa was an asshole. So it was a show. You can Google that too. Really? Okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. I was like stunned, but I thought, wait a minute. I think I'm onto a theme here. And what I discovered was that people don't follow leaders. They follow the compelling saga that the leader represents. Uh... They follow where the leader is going. They follow the you know, the, the path that they're on that mm. is to be achieved. I mean, Steve Jobs was, you know, we're going to put a dent in the universe. And like, it was kind of like, well, you're, you're an asshole to work for, but I love where you're going. And I believe you can get me there, you know? <laughs> so I think we should be teaching that. I think we should be teaching that leadership is about creating a compelling saga that will, that followers will be attracted to and they'll follow that. So your job is just to lead from the saga, not yourself. Mm, that is powerful. Totally destroys a lot of what we're teaching in leadership. But like I said, I've trained 700 CEOs a year and they love it. And these, these CEOs have read every freaking book. They've heard every speaker. They've hired every consultant. And they said, this is different. And this explains a lot. It explains a lot. You put somebody through all this leadership training and they come in, they can't, the turnover rate's high. People... They're not getting the results done. They're not organizing well. They're not being followed. But that's why I say, look, as a leader, what story do you represent? What saga do you represent? Because that's what they're going to follow. Mm, that is because I've worked with like hundreds like of companies in, in my role. Like I'm, I'm a bus business that helps businesses. And it's it is interesting because I see a I have some clients that are leaders and they can be a little bit of an asshole. <laughs> but at the end of the day, they trust me because, you know, I'm the Sherpa and I'm going to help them up the mountain. And you, we talked about earlier about there being dead bodies on the side of the mountain at the end yeah. of the day, they, they trust me, but can they, are, are they always uh, the nicest to me and their team? No, but they have an amazing company. Like, yeah. and that's, that is interesting. Cause I have, I, I have wondered, you know, sometimes because, but the, you know, and even the assholes, we end up becoming really good friends. So I like all of them, but it is interesting. Yeah. It's, it's about the saga more than the person. And that, that makes a lot of sense. I think, you're really like on something and that's, that is going to turn the head on a lot of different things. Yeah. Yeah. I, I will actually, that's going to be ruminating in my head for the rest of the day. Today, today. <laughs> and I, I definitely will have to pick up that book. Well, 
Well, I, we've had a wonderful conversation and I'm looking forward to staying connected. How, if speaking of connection, how can people stay connected with you? What's the best way to, to reach out to you? Sure. Uh, this, the website that I'm centered on right now is sagaleadership.com. Saga, okay. the, the Viking saga, S-A-G-A, uh-huh. leadership.com. And on there too, there's, um, I put a PDF because people were saying, hey, tell me how to bust more myths and like what technique do you use? So I actually have a download there that could help if you're evolving as a leader or you're interested in finding the right books or what really works and what doesn't. So there's a, there's a PDF download on myth busting. So I want, I'll add more as I go, but that's sort of the central place for us right now. Well, I, I think as a, as a, as a writer, a leader, all those different things that, you know, like you said, you might come out with another book about AI and you can come up with subsequent books about the, the saga leadership as it, as it develops. I think yeah. uh, I found that just, just do it. <laughs> Whatever right. you're going to do, just, you know, do it. You can always go back and, and add to it. But right. I think you're definitely on to something. And I can't wait to see how that evolves. And uh, again, uh, he said sagaleadership.com. You can check out more about that. And uh, be sure to like and subscribe, download these episodes so that we can continue to bring more of them. I'm Amy Calandrino signing off. Mm-hmm.